Hey, thanks again, Juan, and thanks everyone for joining us here at the table for worship again today, another resurrection celebration. Yeah, we're still in the season of Easter, and we're in the midst of a, a sermon series called Resurrection Living. And so we're halfway through that series, and so today's message is called Remembering Jesus. Um, I'm going to invite you to look at a painting online, perhaps after the sermon, or maybe even while the sermon is going. There's a painting uh, painted by Rembrandt in 1648 uh, called The Supper at Emmaus. The Supper at Emmaus. And right now the painting, uh, you can actually see it at the Louvre, in uh, the, the Louvre Museum in Paris, France. I've never been to Paris, France and have been to the Louvre, but I'd love to go. But it's there if you'd like to see it uh, live in person. And it really gives us a picture today of our story, that you have two disciples, two sad disciples, and they're walking on their way to a village uh, called Emmaus. It's about a seven-mile walk, and it's where they go to process their, their doubt, their perhaps their uh, missed expectations, misaligned expectations regarding Jesus, and it's where you and I go. Uh, that's where you and I go to process things, don't we? You and I are both still trying to process the resurrection, process what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus. So why don't we look at this most uh, famous passage. It's found in Luke chapter 24, and we're going to pick up in verse 13 and go through verse 35. And again, Jesus is going to show up to them and reveal himself to him to them in a very unexpected way. And uh, we'll be remembering Jesus as we go through this passage. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since all these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and they did not find his body. They came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. 
and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while we talked, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon Peter. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Remembering the story with accuracy really matters. I'll say that again. Remembering the story with accuracy really matters. And that's why I got a call from my mother earlier today. Uh, yes, we're in a beautiful Mother's Day weekend, celebrating Mother's Day. And so I got a call from my mother helping me remember the story accurately. And here's how the story goes. Uh, so earlier this week, I sent my mom a, um, a, a very beautiful hand-painted Mother's Day card painted by a local artist here in San Francisco. His name is Ronell Roberts. Uh, you, you may know him. And uh, my mother called me today reminding me just how beautiful that card really was and how it touched her. And she also uh, reminded me how, um, how the words inside the card, which I wrote, uh, different memories about my mother, how all, how all of those words that I wrote also touched her. But one thing I got wrong inside the card, she, she reminded me. See, in the card, I told my mother that I was, I was, I was grateful for many reasons. And uh, one thing that I, I remembered was that when I invited her to uh, ride with me in my go-kart as a young boy in the back part of our property growing up, uh, she, uh, I remembered it as though she would not get in the go-kart with me. But my mother called me to remind me that she did get in the go-kart with me. <laughs> she reminded me that I was so persistent. I kept inviting her. And against all reason and against all good judgment, my mother said she got in the go-kart with me and that I drove the go-kart just as fast as it would go. And uh, I was drifting around all the dirt corners and basically finally got her back to the house um, safe. But she was trembling <laughs> and vowed that she would never, ever do that again. So she wanted me to remember the story accurately. Um, love you, Mom. I, I hope you're listening to this. Uh, we want to remember the story of Jesus accurately. And so here's some things about remembering Jesus as we go through this passage. The first thing is that remember that you're not alone. Now, COVID-19 season has got us all wearing masks, rightly so. It's got us all sheltering in place, rightly so. And yet it can be a season where, since we're not interacting with people in a, in a normal way or in a way that we're used to, we can feel quite lonely. Um, a walk as a Christian or resurrection living, as we're calling this series, a lot of times it feels like we're alone uh, being a Christian. Does anyone understand my deepest desires? I feel so lonely. Uh, in this passage we see here in verse 13 and 14, and I hope you're looking at this passage with me. Again, it's in Luke chapter 24, and it's verses 13 through 35. Verses 13 and 14, it says they. Yes, that means more than one person. Um, they were not alone. They were walking from Jerusalem to a village named Emmaus. It's about a seven-mile walk, and it's just a reminder for us that walking makes for great conversation. Uh, 
uh, go on several of those walks with my wife, with my wife or our, our kids, and I, I certainly even miss being a, a part of my running club where we log several miles around San Francisco chatting and talking the entire way. But we're reminded here that Emmaus is a place where we go to process our doubts. It's where we go to process our despair, our expectations, our grief. And it's where Jesus meets us on the trail there. And the application here for us is to remember that the process uh, of, of the resurrection is to live in community. Now, last week we looked at Thomas, doubting Thomas, and one of the things that we learned about Thomas is that he did his doubting in community. So many of us, whenever we have a, a, a profound doubt about God, we withdraw from community. We, we, we feel isolated, and, and this is a, an encouragement from the text here and from me to you, to all of us, is don't, don't isolate yourself. Don't withdraw from community especially when you have doubts or despair or questions or especially if you feel hurt or misunderstood. That is the exact time that you and I need to lean into the blessing of, or, uh, of community. We mentioned a couple weeks ago um, to have a prayer partner, someone within our church congregation at the Table Church of San Francisco, to have one person that would be your prayer partner. And for the next several weeks, you would call this person, you would video chat with this person, and that you would read a portion of scripture together and that you would pray for each other. I just want to remind you that you're not alone. That's the first reminder as we go through this text. You're not alone. And your prayer partner, they need you. And yes, you need, you need them. So take advantage of how you can get into the Bible, not just by yourself, but with others. Now, the Table Church is a church that believes in the Bible. We believe in process. We believe in community. We believe in uh, people reading the scriptures together and discussing it. In fact, we had someone over our video community group just this past week that says, wow, I, I, I see now how reading the scriptures together makes such a difference. So we don't uh, have to do this alone. The second reminder here in our, in our passage is that remember that Jesus is greater than our expectations. Yeah, this is all, this story is all about Jesus um, dealing with misguided expectations. They're, these two disciples are sad, perhaps they're cynical, they're on this long walk, they're, they're talking together. Um, verse 14 says they're talking about the events. Yeah, they're talking about history. They're not making this story up. There are true historical events that took place. And so verse 16 says that their eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus. That's another way of saying that Jesus did not meet their expectations. In terms of a Messiah, they expected a Messiah to come and they expected a Messiah to just clean house uh, politically uh, to have a bunch of power, to overthrow all of their, their, their enemies. But what happens is this Messiah who came dies on a cross. And now here they are, after the resurrection, wondering if this truly was the Messiah. And before we uh, want to be very critical of these characters here in this story, similar to the way we did this last week with 
Doubting Thomas, we are these characters that we see in the Bible. We are those doubters. We are these ones that have misguided expectations regarding Jesus. I just want to ask you, what do you expect about Jesus? What do you expect out of Jesus? And perhaps your expectations are way too low of Jesus. Is there something going on in your life right now where you and I could begin to realize that Jesus isn't distant somewhere, but Jesus is actually present? Jesus walks with you as he was walking with these disciples and they didn't even recognize him. Jesus is talking to them and they don't even recognize him. Verse 17, Jesus asked them, what's this conversation that you're having? Jesus is being quite playful here. Jesus in his humanity and his divinity, Jesus already knows the answer, of course. He is the story. But he's asking them, what story are you guys talking about? In verse 18, they respond by, by asking him, are you the only person visiting Jerusalem that doesn't know the events that have taken place? Basically, have you been under a, some rock somewhere? Well, the answer would be yes, he's been in a tomb. But Jesus is fully aware. Their expectations, perhaps, is that he's not alive, he's not present. Verse 21 they get really honest about their expectations. Verse 21, they say, we had hoped that he would redeem Israel. Now, the word redeem here means to release from slavery. See, see, they would have seen life through the fulcrum of the Exodus, this Israelite community, this, this first century group of followers of Jesus. They, they would have seen their entire redemptive history through the fulcrum of of the Exodus, that God saw them in slavery. God heard their cry for a redeemer, a savior, and he brought them out with a mighty hand. He brought them out of slavery. And the story continues to unfold, and now here they are, and their leader who promised a resurrection has been crucified, and they haven't seen him since. We had hoped that he would redeem Israel. See, they were looking for another leader. They were looking for another champion that would come and truly liberate them. And if Jesus is that one, they knew that Messiah, who means king and king of kings, if he's truly the king, he's not going to die on a cross. See, rather, Jesus has different expectations for them. Jesus wants to shape their expectations. Instead of Jesus being that sort of political leader that's going to deal with their enemies the Romans in particular, Jesus came to address a larger problem and a larger enslavement, and that is the pandemic, the enslavement to sin. That's why Jesus came. And that the resurrection, Jesus is coming to put death to death. See, our expectations, our expectations focus on our present circumstances. That's why we miss Jesus. Sometimes that's why we can't see Jesus. We frame the existence of Jesus or we frame the goodness of Jesus or we frame does God care or does Jesus care based on my present circumstances. And Jesus frames his existence on God's plan to redeem his people. 
and God's plan to restore his people. That's the entire promise from the Bible is that there's this huge expectation is that God is on a mission to reclaim and to restore and to heal people and to heal creation. And so our expectation is for God to fix something sometimes, is it not? That's how sometimes you and I approach our prayer life or our relationship with Jesus on our walk to Emmaus. Remember, this walk is a walk of doubt. It's a walk processing grief, processing our expectations, and we expect somehow for God to come in and do something for us. We are those people. There we go again on the road to Emmaus. Verse 25, Jesus says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You see, this outward not recognizing of Jesus shows that there's an inward doubt. There's inward processing that's going on. Jesus is almost saying to these two disciples, hmm, guys, have you read your Bible? Have you... Have you read all the stories of the Bible and yet you don't know the story of the Bible? And yet Jesus is very, very gentle with them. And just remember that Jesus is far greater, far greater than any of your expectations. The next thing to remember is to remember that Jesus is the hero of our story and the, Hebrew of, the hero of the story. Uh, I started out uh, in this talk uh, mentioning uh, a painting by Rembrandt, The Supper at Emmaus. Actually, uh, Rembrandt did several versions and drawings of Jesus with these disciples at Emmaus. And one of Rembrandt's paintings focuses on Jesus just simply walking with the disciples. Yeah, there's a drawing where you can just see Jesus walking there with the disciples, reminding us of the humanity of Jesus, the simplicity I mean, wow, just how simple that is. That Jesus is truly present, walking there with his disciples. There's one version of Rembrandt's Supper at Emmaus where Jesus is clearly painted as divine and there's this, there's this glow around Jesus depicting the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is indeed God. Yes, there's a physicality to Jesus even after the resurrection that Jesus is fully human And mysteriously, simultaneously, Jesus is also God. Jesus is divine. Verse 27, as our story unfolds, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See, Jesus comes to them and reminds them that he is the hero of the story. Jesus comes to them with nothing else but a Bible study. (laughs) What else did you expect? Now, if we were writing this story, if we were this gospel writer, uh, it's, it's Dr. Luke who's recording this for us, but if you and I would have recorded this story, we would have said something like, and then Jesus did something really powerful and amazing, and they believed. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus reveals the scriptures to them. Jesus doesn't just want them to have some sensational experience or an emotional, uh, excited experience with Jesus. 
Jesus wants to ground their faith in the scriptures. So he basically has a Bible study with them. And this talks to you and, and to me about our own engagement with the scriptures, that we're to give ourselves to the scriptures. We're to search through the scriptures. We're to explore it. We're to read it. We're to memorize it. We're to meditate on it. Jesus gives them an interpretive key to understanding all the scriptures. He wants them to know that the whole thing is about me. If you miss that, you miss the entire thing. He gave them, he gave them the interpretation that the story is immersed in a God coming to this world to mend it, to restore it, to redeem it, that the Messiah is God's presence in this world, that he will suffer, he will die, he will rise again. There's a missional thrust to it. And is that the expectation that you and I have when we read the Bible? A lot of, a lot of times it's not the expectation we have. We, we don't read the Bible as if Jesus is the hero of the story. Again, sometimes quite selfishly, we'll just open the Bible and, and we have some problem that we want God to fix for us. And sometimes we think the Bible is really just all about me. For example, one of the famous stories in the Bible is David and Goliath. And perhaps you've heard the story uh, of this told, such as, you too can slay the giants. There are all sorts of giants uh, in your life, problems and hurdles to overcome and problems. And if, you just, if you're just strong enough and if you fight hard enough, you too can slay the giants. Now, the approach there is quite exhausting. Now let me tell you why that's very exhausting and there's no hope and there's no gospel, there's no good news in that message whatsoever. And the reason why is, is um, it doesn't match my reality. It doesn't match your reality. Sometimes I don't slay all the giants. Sometimes I feel like I'm being slayed. Sometimes I feel like I read the Bible a lot and I still fail. But if the story is all about Jesus, and if Jesus is the hero of the story, it's a game changer. There's true liberation whenever we begin to get that Jesus is the hero of the story that when our expectations of Jesus are realigned and the Bible is all about Jesus, we can read the story of David and Goliath and learn that God brings triumph through weakness. David previews Jesus. David points us to Jesus. David is a representative there who's fighting against Goliath. And when David succeeds as a representative. Everyone else experiences the triumph and the success because of a work that was done on the people's behalf, because they had a champion fighting for them. You see, that's what Jesus does for us. That's why he's the hero of this story. Jesus is a representative. And when Jesus triumphs over death through the resurrection, we triumph over death as well. That's because we have union with Christ Union with Christ. That's our identity. That's the liberating truth and power and hope in the gospel here. That's what we're to be remembering. Jesus is the hero of Scripture. 
all the prophets in the Old Testament. Jesus is the prophet behind all of those prophets. They were all pointing towards a greater prophet. All the kings in the Old Testament, fallen as they were, broken as they were, they were all pointing to a king who would come, who would be just and merciful and powerful. Jesus is the hero of Scripture. D.A. Carson is a Bible commentator and writer, and he says, if Jesus was under the curse of God when he died, yet was vindicated by God himself, he must have died for others. Somehow his death absorbed the righteous curse of God that was due others and canceled it out. In that light, the entire Hebrew scriptures looked different. Was it not written that a suffering servant would be wounded for our transgressions? Does the death of countless lambs and bulls really take away sin? Or do we need a human lamb of God, a human Passover lamb? See, we're reminded that we're to read the scriptures with the end in mind. We're to know that Jesus is the Redeemer. We're to know that Jesus is actually going to return to this earth one day and restore all things. We're to know that ending of the story and then go back and read the Bible. That changes everything. Maybe you saw the movie Sixth Sixth Sense, 1999 supernatural psychological thriller. And the first time you watch it, you don't even know what's going on until the end. Then you realize, oh, Bruce Willis is dead. It's almost like now I need to go back and watch the entire thing all over again just to understand it. The Bible is the entire uh, story of you need to know the end of the story first and then go back and read it, that Jesus is truly the hero of the story. All the scriptures point towards Jesus. All the plot lines converge on Jesus. All the themes of salvation converge on Jesus. Applications for us right here is to remember that there's a unified story that you're reading. Not a loose collection of random 66 books called the Bible. Random stories and sayings put together loosely. Also another reminder here is don't get caught up in the dinosaurs. You know what I'm talking about as you read through scripture. Don't don't get caught up in the dinosaurs and don't get caught up on did Adam have a belly button and all of those types of things. See the big picture. See that Jesus is the hero of the story. Have a Christ-centered reading of the Bible. It's not just information coming to you. It's not just uh, random rules that are are there or, or sort of informational transfer but it's actually resurrection living. Where we begin to learn Christ, we begin to see that God is on a rescue mission and we begin to love this God as we begin to see God's attributes and see Jesus as the hero of the story. Another reminder is remember that Jesus is the deepest relationship that we could ever dream of. Jesus is the embodiment of of the deepest relationship that you and I 
dream of, that we were made for. Jesus is, is, actual, is actually a person. He's alive. He walks with you and talks with you, wants to talk to you. Well, you know how important meals are. Um, meals are a sign of acceptance. Maybe you remember uh, being in middle school or perhaps high school and going into the cafeteria. And for some of you, the cafeteria was a place where you did not want to go. Uh, others of you, it was a place where you went looking for community. It was a place where you went looking and hoping to be accepted. Going to the lunchroom, wanting someone just to accept you and invite you to sit down at their table. Please, someone, have an open space, an open chair for me to sit down and join you at your table. One of Rembrandt's Supper at Emmaus uh, there's one version where Jesus is eating at the table with them. Uh, and, and it's just a remarkable work of Rembrandt there where you just get the, get the true sense of relationship that's going on between Jesus and these disciples. Verse 30, back to our story here. When Jesus was at the table with them, he took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. This is sounding kind of familiar, don't you think? Verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus. They recognized him. These meals, see, they, they would, this would have echoed to them. This echoes the feeding of the 5,000. That Jesus fed them. Jesus loved food. Lots of stories about Jesus and food. And the meal he established in the upper room with them, the Last Supper, Jesus is wanting them to know, I, I, I am that one who comes to establish deep intimacy with you, deep relationship with you. See, the meal tells us the entire story. This is the climax of our story. This is the climax right here, that their eyes are opened. They recognize, wow, this is, this is Jesus. This is the one. The meal tells us the entire story, and it actually goes all the way back when you think about Genesis the Bible starts with a meal. Yes, Adam and Eve decide that they can feast and enjoy life without God. We can have a feast without God. We know better than God. We'll choose and do exactly what we want to do. And they can't. They can't have a feast like they thought they could. They couldn't be satisfied as they thought they could. So in order... Uh, for God to, to mend that relationship um, and, and, and in order for them to sit at the table again with God and be reunited with God in, in a good relationship, God decides that he must do something. So the prophets begin to, to speak and they begin to say that one will come, one will enter our world, one who's perfect, He'll walk, he'll talk, he'll eat with his disciples. And the prophets say things like, come, buy wine, buy bread, buy milk, buy, uh, buy bread without money, meaning the gospel is free. The deepest relationship that we've always longed for, our deepest hunger in life is fulfilled in Jesus freely. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the reminder that we need today. 
And the meal in the New Testament meal is this communion meal that we have a meal with Christ. It's a meal of welcome. That he wants to dine with you. He wants to dine with me. He calls others to join in this meal if only they can admit that they're hungry and that their soul needs this meal that Christ provides. Jesus promised, if you're hungry, if you're thirsty, come to me. Meaning nothing else in this world will satisfy you like me. And then the last meal that we learn in scripture is when Christ returns. We have another meal. There's another feast. Wow, Jesus really does love food like me and like you. There's another meal when Christ returns. Sin and death, racism, it will be no more. It's gone. All sin wiped away. Injustice is gone and our communion meal points to that promise. It's that reminder. So when we celebrate communion here in just a few moments and as we celebrate it week in and week out, it's that reminder of communion and unity with one another and with Christ intimacy in this relationship. Please remember that. Our response. What is our response as we think about all of these reminders about Jesus? Rembrandt's Supper at Emmaus, there's one version of it where Jesus is is being recognized by the disciples and wow, the look on the disciples' face. it's, It's like Nothing else when you see the look on their face. That's their response. That's their response. Verse 32, verse 32, there's burning passion in the disciples. It says, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened the scriptures to us? See, our response is a burning passion towards Jesus. Not a critical spirit whenever we come into worship or or some sort of uh, critique constantly about either the person speaking or the verse that we're looking at or, or a consumer mentality whenever we come into worship, looking to be entertained. They were reminded here, don't come as a casual observer or a bystander. To come truly with interest and to come truly as a follower of Christ is to come saying, give me yourself, God. I'm hungry unless you reveal yourself to me, God. Show me yourself in the scriptures. Give me a burning passion for you, Lord Jesus, and your kingdom. Even in the way you taught us to pray, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Give us a burning passion to see that, to see justice in that way to see peace go forth in that way. Another response that we see here is in verse 33 to 35. Celebration. Celebration is a very accurate response when we remember Jesus. There's a celebratory mood and cadence to our lives. We we have to go tell someone about what we've experienced. That's what evangelism really is. It's one hungry person going to tell another another hungry person where to get food. You begin to understand that the mission is that you are commending your story and you're commending the story of the resurrection to someone else. 
How they process the story is not up to you. But that the mission, that God is on a mission. This is our story. This is our song. See, they celebrated. They celebrated. Verse 33 and 30 through 35 says, says that they, they got up. Yeah, they got up. Jesus, is van- Jesus vanishes, and guess what they do? They got up, and they go another seven miles right back to Jerusalem to tell everybody about it. Here, here's, here's the good news of the gospel in our story today. Jesus' memory is greater than your memory. Please do not leave this sermon or this talk thinking, oh, wow, I'm, I'm just going to fail miserably as I try to remember Jesus. I'm going to try really hard, and I just know I'm going to forget. Here's the good news. Here's the hope. Here's the gospel message to you and I today. Jesus remembers you. Even when we fail to remember Jesus, Jesus comes to us on that road to Emmaus in the midst of our doubt, in the midst of our misguided expectations, and he walks with us. He remembers us. That God, this God, sometimes that we think, God, I've been pursuing you so much just to get to know you. When we finally realize God has been there all along, God has been in existence all along and has pursued me and you our entire lives. So when we forget Jesus, Jesus still comes to us and Jesus remembers us and Jesus will open our eyes and cause our hearts to burn with passion for God. Let's pray for that. Let's pray right now together. Father God, we pray right now that you would give us grace as we continue to tell the story. We pray that you would open our eyes as you did for these disciples. Cause our hearts to burn within us for passion as you did for these disciples. And cause us to go and and live in this resurrection story that we might commend the resurrected Christ to others and Lord Jesus, on a weekend like this, we also, we also want to pray for justice. We also want to pray for Ahmad Arbery's family and their loss. Oh God, please show up for them on their road to Emmaus, as it were. Show up for them. Comfort them. God, we, we cry out for justice. We cry against racism and we pray for your mercy. Have mercy, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.